Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to the Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with the one and only Barney Frank. We spoke about what it takes to be a true legislator, what the LGBT movement could have done differently and learned from the civil rights era and the wedding gifts he got from Bono and Nancy Pelosi. It's just funny to think about them going online in Crate and Barrel being like, should I get him a gravy trivet? That's not what happened. But you'll find out what did in our interview, which took place at the Zoho House. Enjoy. I'm so pleased to be sitting here with Barney Frank. Um, Barney, I first wanted to open up and ask you, do you prefer to go by congressman? No, I'm not a congressman anymore. I don't understand why titles take you to the grave. I think people ought to be called by what they are. Do you still feel honorable? Yes, but not because I was given the formal title. I just try to live my life honorably. Um, I wanted to ask you about humor, and I I don't like when people analyze humor, except that someone pointed out to me how, um, because you're so witty, and they were talking about Udall, and Fritz Hollins, Mo Udall and, and Fritz Hollins as well, of, of using humor as a way uh, to put people in their place. And that was an essential key to your job. No, it's very helpful. Although I, I want to say, and I want to be very uh, uh, gender equal here, the funniest single line I've ever heard in politics came from Hollings, but not from Fritz, from his wife, Pizzi. Uh, Senator Hollings and his wife arrived apparently Early, in the early hours of the morning for him to give a speech uh, a few hours later at a breakfast and they were trying to get some sleep in the hotel and the phone rang and she answered it very groggily and uh, said hello and a voice on the other end it was obviously a nervous organizer of the breakfast said is this the howling suite and with a great presence of mind having just awakened Pizzi held the phone to her mouth turned slightly and said Honey, is your name Hollings? I think that was the funniest thing I ever heard in politics. Um, well, it's two things. First of all, for humor to be useful to a politician, it has to include a very significant self-deprecatory element. Uh, constantly just making fun of other people means that you're mean, and people don't like mean people, and one of the most important things about humor is to in- Increase your likability. <clears throat> likability is very important when you're trying to get people to vote for you. Secondly, it is a good way to deflate others once you have made it clear that you're a uh, you, you're a target yourself. Uh, and um, it is a particularly useful way to to tag people with something that's memorable. Yeah. I mean, people hear a lot of political arguments, and to the extent that you can make something funny while underlining your point, you, you uh, give that comment some life. And uh, I would say one of the most successful for me was, and I've been, you know, the, the ultimate triumph as you've seen it, you have it quoted to you by other people later on. During the Reagan years when he was pressing to outlaw abortion, but was also moving to cut back on virtually every program that helped poor children, I said that from uh, the Republicans standpoint, uh, as far as the government is concerned, life began at conception but ended at birth. <laughs> and I, I found that, frankly, to be A, funny, but B, very, very memorable and, and useful politically, it made the point. No, that's right, but I... I but there's one other fact about humor, uh, and, and I have to be honest, I think this would be true for others of you. 
The main reason you do it is to keep your sanity. I mean, you know, politics has stressful moments, and uh, uh, I, the, you know, when I say something funny, uh, the first person to whom that funny thought, uh, the first person who, who hears that funny thought is me, and, and I like to, uh, it, it kind of relaxes me as well. That is one other element I should mention, which gives you an advantage over comedians. It's easier to be to get a reputation for being funny when you are mostly in venues when people are not expecting people to be funny. It is very hard to be funny, or it is harder when the audience is sitting there saying, I paid good money to laugh, now you, you better make me laugh. There's almost a skepticism. Whereas in politics, um, where the expectation is that people are gonna be uh, grave, maybe pompous, possibly boring. Humor possibly is boring? A, <laughs> humor is a, is a welcome, Relief. And I've sometimes found this phenomenon where I will speak to audiences who are unfamiliar with me and uh, they don't expect you to be funny. And I will say some things that I usually get a laugh from. I mean, the trick, of course, is you can't say something funny for the first time. Every time you repeat yourself some, you try to make it sound spontaneous. But um, there'll be initially a kind of a, a resistance to laughing. And it takes a little while for people to say, oh, no, I guess he's trying to be funny. It's okay. It wouldn't be rude to laugh. Right, right. That they don't have a sense of humor necessarily, or they just don't no, know No, they okay. do. They just didn't bring it to that, <laughs> uh, to that particular uh, meeting. Do you feel like C-SPAN owes you some residuals? Actually, it's the other way around. I'm very disappointed to learn that C-SPAN uh, has been charging a lot of money. They get this right to broadcast these things publicly. And uh, uh, I, a couple of people just did a documentary about me. And C-SPAN Compared was, to what? Right. Uh, and C-SPAN was uh, charging them a lot of money for uh, public performances. And then they told me they somebody found some contractual clause that made them pay less. I don't think C-SPAN ought to be able to uh, uh, charge the amounts that they've been charging uh, to, to share things that they got with their publicly granted monopoly. Having watched C-SPAN, I feel like they should be paying us to watch them, so I'm, I'm angered on that front as well, but I, I do. Um, but I, I genuinely find that um, I had no idea. That is really yeah. No, it's very troubling to me. And I, uh, if I was still in office, I'd be looking into it. I'm going to urge some of my colleagues to. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the civil rights because it seems such a key. I, I think it, once LGBT rights became um, fought as a civil rights issue, it gained momentum. And I've spoken with you before when you said that a lot of the younger, you're a lot of the younger folks that you were working with weren't familiar with the civil rights movement's tactics. Correct. In fact, it was even worse. They, it's a problem when people don't know something. <clears throat> it's often a greater problem when they know something that wasn't true, when they have a mistaken view. You know, obviously, it's a civil right, but it's a different kind of a civil right. I mean, I, obviously, the discrimination those of us who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender face is a problem. It has never reached the dimensions of racism. We were not slaves, at least not involuntarily. And um, the, um, there's only one area, actually, I've said where younger gay and legend people had one, one problem that black people didn't face. No, no black kid ever had to tell her parents that she was black. That's a trauma that they've escaped. But other than that, being black was, was much tougher. We, by and large, dealt with it by hiding. They couldn't hide, didn't hide. <clears throat> but it's, it's always been a civil right, but it has different, different uh, aspects. 
the mistake that many in the LGBT movement made was to have this image of the uh, movement for racial fairness as one which just uh, one day demanded that everything be done and it was done. Uh, the notion was that there was never any compromise. Uh, one of the things I heard was, oh, well, Rosa Parks never sat in the middle of the bus. In fact, in the early years of the civil rights movement, it really came into being in post-World War II America. It's interesting, I was just speaking of the Holocaust Museum in Michigan at an exhibit on Hitler's uh, war on, on, on gay men. And I noted that it was really the reaction to the Holocaust that was the beginning of, of the fight seriously against prejudice in America, anti-Semitism, uh, women's rights, the fight certainly for racial equality, LGBT rights. They were all post-World War II when, when people, I think, were shocked by the recognition of just how, how terrible hatred is when it gets unchecked. Um, but um, the Civil Rights Movement began, the first cases brought by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Thurgood Marshall's organization, to the United States Supreme Court didn't challenge segregation. What they said was, look, they say things are going to be separate but equal, but they're not equal. Make them be equal. I mean, they literally were litigating within the framework of acceptance of separate but equal. And the civil rights legislation, people said, well, you've got to have everything in one bill. Well, there were several civil rights bills. And even the big civil rights bill of 1964 didn't cover either voting or housing. There was a civil rights bill in 64. There was a Voting Rights Act the next year. And we didn't get a fair housing bill uh, banning racial discrimination in housing until 1968 after the murders of Robert Kennedy and Martin King. So. Um, that's my problem. The other thing is that the great model of, of demonstrations of civil disobedience, the progenitors of that, first Gandhi and then Martin Luther King as his, as his conscious student, began when the people leading those movements represented people who couldn't vote. Right. Indians had no vote in the British Empire. Black people tragically, outrageously, couldn't vote in most of the South. So demonstrations were the only way to go. Once we got the Voting Rights Act in 1965, the focus of much of the civil rights movement shifted to people using their political rights uh, as, a, as a more effective way of doing things. And uh, those were, were aspects of the civil rights movement that a lot of, of, of gay and lesbian people didn't understand. There's a great book written by Taylor Branch about Martin Luther King. Parting the Waters? Yeah. It's a, he's got two volumes. Parting the Waters in particular it's all about Martin Luther King's strategic and tactical choices, his compromises, the anguish he felt because he had to sometimes back down. And there was a subtlety and a, a political sophistication married to his moral imperative that uh, a lot of younger lesbian and gay people just, just assumed away. Bullying, which is an issue that affects everyone who's a teenager, it feels like, but it just seems to be so corrosive and violent now. Um, and I'm sure it was always violent. I think we just hear about it more often. Um, are there things that, that Congress can actually do or that, that the government can do to intervene? Not so much Congress, because education is administered at the local level. We were able to do it. Uh, what, what, one of the fights that we had in one was to keep Congress from stopping local communities. Um, back in the 80s, when we were in our early stages of trying to muster public support, there were a couple of schools, uh, I think Project 10 in Los Angeles and Harvey Milk, uh, here in New York, where we now are, which uh, set up schools to be protective of uh, lesbian and gay, bisexual and transgender students and uh, have some programs for that. And there was a move in Congress to kind of cut them off. It's interesting, the first outing of a Republican member of Congress came as a result of that. There was this right-wing 
fool named Hancock from Missouri who had an amendment to try and cut off federal aid education to schools that were promoting homosexuality. And a uh, closeted gay Republican named Steve Gunderson opposed him very effectively on the floor. Gunderson was much smarter than Hancock and was making him look silly. And a, an extreme right-wing congressman from California named Robert Dornan was so upset about this, he went to Hancock's aid and in the course of that, outed Gunderson on the floor of the House. This is in 1996. Um, we were able to defeat the amendment. Gunderson had, at that point, having decided he wasn't going to run for re-election, had then decided he was going to run again, but once he was outed, he couldn't run again. So it really, it, it, it forced him to leave Congress uh, and decide. Democrats who have come out have been treated very well by our party. Republicans who have come out have generally been uh, defeated and, and, and repudiated by the, by the Republican Party. Um, but... Um, so we were able to stop Congress from intervening and stopping support for young kids, but more affirmative uh, efforts to protect people against bullying have to come to the school level. But I'm glad you said what you said. Uh, I just think it's outrageous that we say that if you're 15, you can be uh, physically assaulted, you can have minor theft, you can have your property vandalized, and, and, and the authorities will just not intervene. Whereas if you were 25, it would be a crime. Uh, it is just outrageous that we tolerate and even laugh at this kind of physical uh, violence against uh, 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 teenagers. What are the key issues now you feel like for LGBT that still need um, to well, be passed? And I know the one single of biggest is one is the uh, protection against being fired. Uh, I found this again. I was speaking somewhere, and uh, uh, people did not realize that. Uh, you could be fired if you were uh, a gay or lesbian, and uh, in most states. So that's the single biggest one. Uh, we've corrected some. One of the things I'm proud of, by the way, uh, after the initial failure to allow gay and lesbian people to serve in the military, one of the, one of the things I'm proudest of having worked on was after the failure uh, to win the right for people to serve as gays in the military in the early 90s under Clinton. I proposed to him a couple of things that he could do under his own authority that Congress couldn't block him from doing. It was Congress that blocked the uh, military service issue. One of them was abolishing the uh, restriction on our getting security clearance, which he did. The other was declaring that if you were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and you were being persecuted for that reason in a foreign country, you could get asylum in the U.S. And that is now in effect, and I was very... I felt good, not that the situation arose, but that we were available. Uh, I noted uh, a day or two ago that a, uh, a leader of the Ugandan gay rights movement, where, where there is the worst depression going on right now in the world, has applied for asylum in the U.S., and I assume uh, he will get it under that, uh, under that provision. But the one area where we still have the lack of protection in many states, more than half of the states, not necessarily more than half the population, is... Uh, you can still be fired because uh, if your boss finds out you're a lesbian, she, she or he can fire you. And uh, they can't do that for your race. They can't do that for other characteristics. What we really need is a national, that's the last national law we need passed to protect people from being fired because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And compared to what, the new documentary about you that's out, um, there, they, sh they show your uh, home in D.C. and how isolating it was and that you had trash bags on your windows. Um, and then <laughs> you told me that you just hadn't put shades up. 
Yeah, it was a matter of convenience. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't... I'm relatively indifferent <laughs> to my physical surroundings. But I um, did like that in the movie they were trying to foreshadow what was going on inside for you leave, le leading this double life was that you lived in a room... No, that's, that's <laughs> the, the fact that it was trash bags had nothing to do with it. it was, that, that was to you know, keep the line out. I just didn't get around to putting up uh, shades of courage. One thing, I'm not very handy physically. I don't, I don't, I don't uh, do well with inanimate objects, but it, it had no great significance. Were there any other aspects of the film that you, you might have um, done differently if you could? Well, I did uh, think that there were two aspects of the inaccurate charge that I was a major cause of financial crisis, both involving Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. One was that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac caused the financial crisis. No rational person thinks that. They, they, they were a, uh, a factor, but they, they, were by no, they didn't make loans. I mean, the bad... The problem here were bad loans. They didn't make the loans. They bought loans that were made by others. If private sector entities hadn't made the loans to make a profit, Fannie and Freddie wouldn't have had a role. But the, but other, the people who worked at Fannie and Freddie Mac, who were in charge, did have a hi history of doing dumb things. That's what I, I, I... First of all, I thought the movie was, was complimenting you on that part, but go on with what you were saying. Well, the dumb things they did was to buy loans that other people made but that's hardly the cause of the crisis. No, absolutely. They, they, they were contributions, and they were under pressure to do that. Um, the other one was the argument that I had somehow uh, prevented regulation of Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac, and it is true. In 2003, I had said, I didn't think we needed to regulate them. Dick Cheney then wrote in his book that in 2003, the Bush administration tried to regulate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank stopped us. The problem was that I wasn't Financial Services Committee Chairman in 2003. I didn't become the chairman of 2007. The Republicans were in power then. And the fact is that it was during the Republicans' regime that no legislation was passed. And as Bush's Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, explains in his book, it's when he became Secretary of the Treasury and I became the chairman that the legislation was adopted. So I, I, don't, I, I think that they, they did make the point that Fannie and Freddie didn't cause the crisis. They did not sharpen the point that, in fact, having been wrong about it in 2003 when I was in the minority. A year later, I decided that we did have to do the regulation, and it was when I became chairman that the regulation was adopted. I did, um, I mean, first of all, anything in hindsight is always easy to look at and not look at all the context of what's going on there, and then to have someone in another book decide to pinpoint it on Democrats and therefore you. Well, no, Cheney's book, he didn't decide that, he just lied. I, I have to say, 2003 was not a good year for Dick Cheney. Um, that was also the year Think which, about the guy who got shot. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about the country that got invaded. That's true. Uh, 2003 was the year that Cheney announced that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, you know, he just consciously lied. He writes in his book that in 2003, I killed the bill as chairman. And then in 2005, again, the Democrats killed the bill. Well, again, the Republicans were in power. And in fact, the Republican chairman of the committee in 2005, when Cheney is blaming us for the bill dying, his name was Mike Oxley, he said... This bill died because George Bush gave me the one-finger salute. It was an internal Republican dispute. Which and then finger? <laughs> and then Cheney says in 2008, the bill finally got passed. He doesn't say who did it. In other words, he blames the Democrats for killing the bill when the Republicans were in power, and then mentions that the bill got passed when the Democrats came to power without anybody having credit. Apparently, it just materialized uh, overall. So that was just conscious lying. Did you ever get exhausted from just having to constantly bicker about things that are just not true? Uh, no, um, I would be annoyed by it sometimes, but I, I uh, was able to mostly concentrate on, on 
the uh, the positive side. The the one thing I did well, you just can tolerate it better. I mean, I think for the reason that most Americans are not as focused on politics as it gets um, irritating after a while to to listen to the bickering and not actually get anything. Well, I disagree with bickering. Uh, what do you do when two people disagree about something? Why is it bickering when two political figures who disagree about what taxes should be or whether or not we should mm -hmm. go to war are arguing? I, and I know this is a journalistic convention, bickering. Uh, well, what about arguing? What about debating? Um, Sometimes it's debating when, it, when it's a logical argument, but I think that just because people have different opinions doesn't mean they all need to be heard. And I think sometimes it, it I guess what I'm calling bickering and, and, and being d dismissive about in that moment is the sort of filibustering of point or um, you know, not focusing on the issue at hand because it's not going to help your party later. Those kinds of things is what I'm sort of putting under. Oh, you mean bickering. as opposed to most people in the country who always argue by very logical, <laughs> clean-cut no. debate. No, no. I, I, I disagree with your defense of that. Okay. There is this mischaracterization of legitimate political debate as bickering, and it demeans the process, and in fact, that's how things happen. Were Lincoln and Douglas bickering? I mean, they no. made fun of each other some. Uh, have you ever read the, you know, the correspondence between Jefferson and, and, uh, and Hamilton? Um, it was in many ways meaner-spirited than some of what we do today. I, I don't think they were bickering. I think they were arguing angrily about fundamental issues. No, I, I, I completely understand when it is a genuine argument um, that is heartfelt and is about, is about truly disagreeing. Like, when you're talking about the financial situation, who do you give money to to help get back on their feet and who, who do you not is a real issue. Yep. And um, one I didn't always understand the logic behind in, in the results, so I was glad that there was a lot of argument over these things. It's, that's a different thing than I think I'm referring to, which... Um, no, I don't, because... Argument, human beings are human beings, and people, when people are differing with each other verbally, mm -hmm. there is a mix of rational argument, name-calling, anger, misrepresentation. It's an inevitable part of the human process, and I have to tell you, I have listened to a lot of arguments among people. I do not find the quality of arguments among elected officials inferior to the quality of arguments I hear among average citizens on, on a variety of issues. That, that seems fair. Perhaps it's that um, we don't have to listen to the other people unless they're talking on their cell phone. That's loudly. a fair point. <laughs> um, I, I think that is a key part of your job, that you are able to not take things personally and to stick to your issues um, that you cared about. I did want to ask you a little bit about legislating. Um, it's something that you and Lyndon Johnson um, are both known for being really good at. What are the key elements that you see to, to be a good legislator? First of all, you have to recognize that uh, it's a very peculiar business. Nobody can give anybody else an order. There's no hierarchy. And you can't buy and sell each other. I mean, you know, I can buy a car, I can sell my services as a lecturer, but I can only persuade other people to vote with me. All of us are legally equal. Nobody in the House of Representatives has legal authority over anybody else. The Speaker cannot order anybody to do anything. You have to be persuasive. That means that personal factors are very important. The second thing is you have to look for areas where you have a mix of agreement and disagreement. And here's what you have to hope, that on a given issue, people have a range of agreements and disagreements. And the ideal situation is that we, have, we give different levels of importance to those things. So something can be more important to somebody else where we disagree, and I'll give in to her, and it, 
something else can be more important to me and she'll give in to me. It's recognizing that you've got to have this kind of a package and that you have a vested interest in maintaining a, a situation in which you can come to agreement or else everybody can veto everybody. Um, I also heard about you that you never see the same thing twice on your desk, that you deal with it right away. I try to, yeah. I mean, people will call me and I'll call them back and they say, oh, oh, you called me. I said, well, I'll hang up. And people have said, oh, you called me so soon. I said, hey, I hang up and call back tomorrow. But I really did, I, I, I don't like to keep things hanging around. That's a great mistake. And sometimes I will, I mean, I, you, you, you put more energy in them. But I have to look at the same thing three or four times. It's much better to deal with it right away if I can. What were the things that you did feel comfortable delegating to your staff? Well, the first thing you have to realize is, after a while, I've been doing this for a while, it's probably the case that I can do many of the things that my office has to do better than newer people. But I can't do all of them better if I have to do them all myself. So I would delegate those things which did not um, require judgment as much. Not I, I don't mean judgment, uh, you know, I don't mean people could be stupid, but, but required some value judgment. And secondly, uh, things that were relatively politically indifferent. I mean, I guess it would be, there were things that, that it, would be, it would be bad if they weren't done, but it was not as important as to the specifics with which they were done. And uh, that's what I would delegate. And then uh, I certainly delegated information gathering. I mean, I, I got to be very reliant because I had very good people. So I, I, I completely delegated information gathering. That's from picking really good people. Yeah. Um, now that you're no And inheriting some. The, uh, the people I had on the staff of the Financial Services Committee, uh, many of them had been hired by my predecessor, particularly Jean Westlanowick, the chief of staff. She was excellent. And I inherited Jean and, and deferred to her judgment in picking other people. When your whole identity has been your job, is it possible to slow down? Well, my whole identity wasn't my job. For one thing, uh, I was, for my entire adult life, also a closeted gay man. And um, part of my identity was trying to live my personal life. At first, very badly and, 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 and uh, uh, foolishly in some ways, because I was trying to be publicly prominent and privately secret. Uh, and once they came out in particular, uh, that became a much more important part of it. Uh, and secondly... Um, what it, helped you make that transition? Well, I just couldn't live the way I was living. I mean, I was just... Uh, you, you, I know people have said, oh, well, she doesn't need a personal life. She's all wrapped up in her job. That's bullshit. I mean, you... Everybody has physical and emotional needs that need some outlet. And if you try to channel them into your job, I think you're more likely to have your job deteriorate, your job performance, rather than your personal life uh, be satisfactory. I was aware that there would be some political benefit if I came out, um, but I also thought it was, it was, it was mostly uh, uh, personal. But the other part of it is that there were things that uh, I enjoy reading, I enjoy other, you know, hanging out with people. No, uh, I have not missed uh, the pace at all. In fact, after... 45 years of pretty constant, high-level tension. Um, you know, I had this situation where for 45 years, uh, I was dependent on large numbers of voters, most of whom inevitably were strangers to me, as to whether I was still going to have a job uh, three years later. And uh, that uh, makes it tense. I was uh, at the mercy of other people's actions to some extent, how I was going to be judged. So being free of that tension, it's an enormous uh, relief, and I'm very happy with it. Do you still get free parking? And 
Um, no, I, um, well, I take it back. I could, I do, if I had a car in Washington, D.C., I could park. We never got free parking. Um, but you had those parking permits. Those, um, they used to be you could park with your license plate in certain places and where other people couldn't park. Uh, and that's how um, the, it was when this guy I was hiring abused that, that, I, that, that was one of the things I was, I was uh, reprimanded for. But um, other than that, no, you had no, I mean, I, I couldn't park in, well, there were parking lots where I could park in, in D.C. And yeah, if I'm in D.C. and I have my former member's plate, I can still park in some of those parking lots. But I usually, I, I don't have a car in D.C. anymore. Um, occasionally I rent one. Uh, so I, I really uh, have, have uh, occasion to park there. So you've written a book and you have this documentary coming out about you. What, el what else are you up to? Well, I make speeches for money. I have an agent, William Morris Endeavor. I, I am a contributor for pay to NBC, particularly for MSNBC and CNBC, although a couple of NBC shows. Not and, Fox? Well, you, A, you only do one, but B, I think Fox is a waste of time. Um, the audience there is so right-wing that uh, there was any point. Uh, um, you know, CNN has a more moderate audience, and, and, and CNBC does, MSNBC has a more left one, but I, I think Fox is a waste of time. Um, so I am a contributor to NBC, I make speeches for money, um, and I write a column once a week for the paper in Portland, Maine. It's owned by uh, one of our best friends, Jim's and mine, who's the husband of the congresswoman from Southern Maine. His name is Donald Sussman. She's Shelley Pingree. And uh, uh, that's essentially how I make some money. Uh, what I loved in the film, they showed um, all of your colleagues at your wedding. You were the first sitting congressman to um, get married who's gay in office. Um, what were some of the wedding gifts that you got? Well, some very nice things. Uh, Vicki Kennedy gave us a, uh, a uh, copy of a, of, of a painting that, that her late husband Ted had done. Bono gave us a signed... Uh, a portrait of one of his uh, uh, campaigns in uh, in, in uh, for Africa. Um, Jim's sister gave us a lovely kind of house plate, the Frank Reddy house. Uh, uh, our next door neighbor gave us a couple of very lovely uh, wine goblets. Um, have you gotten all your thank you notes out? No. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you get to those, and I want to thank you so, so much. This has been truly an honor and a privilege to sit with you. So thank you very, very much. For My pleasure. Thank you. Um, and congratulations on winning the Employee of the Month Award. Well, thank you. Since I'm now not an employee anymore, it's nice to have it. It's actually the key to winning this award. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much to Barney Frank. Thank you to Ian Mazoff, as well as the Soho House. And thanks to all of you for listening. Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com, get on the mailing list so you can find out about discounts for our future live tapings. The next one is June 26th at Joe's Pub. And subscribe on iTunes. You can also go online to figure out ways to get involved because we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for all of your comments and feedback. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.